Gentlemen, welcome to the PX3 program. December 6th, 2019. That was the reaction received from Andrew Yang during an appearance on David Axelrod's podcast, The Axe Files. It's one of the better uh, advocacy podcasts that's out there. Axelrod, of course, a part of the Obama campaign but the reason why i play it for you is because that might be the only warm and fuzzies that andrew yang gets in december we're going to talk all about the upcoming debate threshold because after a very 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 diverse field debuted on the miami debate stage in july oh boy we might be getting very, very, very monochrome. All that plus a final autopsy on the Kamala Harris campaign. Michael Bloomberg getting a little pointed as he has now officially entered the race. An interview about how much legislating is done from the bench. Really how both sides are using the courts to get their legislative aims completed. And the latest on the impeachment vote headcount. But let's begin with this debate threshold. Because with Kamala Harris out, she had qualified. We currently have six people that are guaranteed spots on that stage. Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and Tom Steyer. As you might well know, unless you are colorblind, those are all white people. On the bubble are the following. Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, Cory Booker, and Julian Castro. They have all cleared the donor criterion, but have yet to hit the polling criterion. Now, some are closer than others. Booker and Castro are out. And by the way, they've already raised their hackles saying that the DNC has effectively excluded all minorities. Gabbard and Yang are close, but they've got six days and they need to get one poll. A poll that gives them 4% support in either a national poll or an early state poll. I guess they could also do, if they got 6% support in two polls, which they added that, the DNC added the local polling thing, so if you're really, really, really qualifying well in in a certain early state, that they would recognize that, but that hasn't really made a difference. The, The basic way that people have gotten in is the lower polling threshold, which is 4% support in either national polls or local polls, among a pre-qualified pool. Now, I criticize this because every debate threshold up until now 
has gone in two debate cycles. So July and August both had the same qualifications. And then the next two, and then the next two, and then the next two. November and December, based on that cadence, should have been the same threshold. That's not the case. They raised it. Now it's up to 4%, and you might see a raise even higher to 5% in January. And I would have gotten the raise to 5% in January if they had kept November and December the same. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, why are they trying to chase people out of this race? Because effectively, not appearing on the debate stage is a death knell. And the DNC and Tom Perez are likely thinking, we need to clear out some of these people. Well, they might succeed. Six people will be up on that stage and they're going to get accusations of racism. And meanwhile, you've got people that obviously have some kind of momentum in Yang and Gabbard. Yang's raised a lot of money. Gabbard has been yelled at by Hillary Clinton, which immediately makes her one of the most popular people on the planet. I think that their voices that are well serve to be heard by people, especially two months before Iowa. And yet here we are. Now, I tend to expect Yang and Gabbard to qualify. But you don't know, and I will say this, if the Yang gang is excluded from this debate, they will not be happy. I just don't understand why they had to raise the threshold here. It just seems like micromanaging to me. Politics! I joked and joked and joked about the Kamala Harris campaign having not one but two campaign obituaries written before she actually left the race, one by Politico, the other by the New York Times, and it appears that now we get the final edition of the trilogy, this one actually coming out after she left the race, and it posits a possible change. Now, there seemed to be, my reading of the sources of the previous two stories was that there indeed was a rift between Kamala Harris's sister, who was the campaign chairwoman, and Juan Rodriguez, who was Kamala Harris's campaign manager, and that Kamala Harris's sister's people were talking to Politico, and then the Juan Rodriguez people were talking to the New York Times. And that's why we got two, uh, uh, you know, knockdown, drag out articles about all the chaos that was happening within the campaign. So now we get another one from Politico, and this one also seems like it came from Kamala's sister. Headline, Harris planned major campaign shakeup just before she quit. And what do you think that that shakeup was supposed to be? Hmm. If part of the issue here is Kamala Harris's sister talking about how much she hated the campaign manager, who do you think was supposed to get fired? Yup. 
Campaign advisors and donors close to Harris said that she signed off on a plan to name trusted advisor LaFonza Butler to the top post. Many inside and around the campaign believed that she could abridge the combatant factions after much of the staff lost trust in campaign manager Juan Rodriguez. So that was the plan. And there was already a Kamala Harris super PAC uh, that was raising over a million dollars for an ad buy in Iowa. Then why didn't she go through it? Well, shout out to Mr. 305 Pitbull, but money is a major issue. And I think she ran out of it. Here's the quote. At the end of the day, money played a major part of it. She was running a campaign for us, that which for us was a movement. And she had people that really loved and trusted it. It's tough. It's really tough. That is a... (laughs) That is code for we just hit nothing. Her last campaign filing had her at $10 million on hand. This story says that she was only going to have raised $4 million this quarter. And she was considering doing something that both Julian Castro and Cory Booker have already done once successfully, which is threaten to quit the campaign if they can't hit their fundraising goals. But ultimately, Kamala decided to pack it up. Which I don't blame her. By the way, Joe Biden already came out and said, oh, I have no hard feelings with Kamala. Maybe we could have her on the ticket as a vice president. Hmm, you don't say. Politics. I watched and I said, we just can't have another four years of this. And then I watched all the candidates and I just thought to myself, Donald Trump would eat them up. You think all of the candidates who are running today, he would eat them up? Let me f- rephrase it. Hell yeah, I think he'd eat them up. That is Michael Bloomberg giving his first interview uh, since jumping into the race uh, for president. That is on CBS with Gail King. They also got the first of all Patrick interview. Boy, are they dominating the really bizarrely late presidential candidates that are really only in the race because they think Joe Biden is going to be too busy challenging other 80-year-olds to push-up contests to make it through to the nomination. I mean, there's really not a whole lot here except to say that Michael Bloomberg's actually running. One of the great will-they-won't-they's of history has finally been settled. Michael Bloomberg is running. I don't think he's a particularly strong candidate. I don't think that the current Democratic primary particularly likes him. Uh, I think that if the moderate vote coalesces around anybody, it'll be Biden or Buttigieg. And I think that Michael Bloomberg not making any debate appearances, not challenging in Iowa, not challenging in New Hampshire, not challenging in Nevada, and not challenging in South Carolina is a a recipe for not winning the nomination. I guess you can hope that this winds up turning into something akin to the 2008 Republican primary where everybody was really beat up after those first initial states that by the time they got to Super Tuesday, there still were like three or four viable people in there. But you'd hope for, I mean, basically, Michael Bloomberg is hoping 
that he is like kind of an old style white knight candidate. And this used to happen back in the conventions where everything was decided on like five or six successive ballots. But at a certain point, everybody hates the people that are on the ballots for the first few that somebody fresh has to step in. But I mean, if you're going to do that, then why even get in now? Wait, wait until it is totally uh, a, a, a crap show and nobody likes anybody and everybody's totally fractured and then come in. Because now he's just another billionaire. Which, by the way, what did I tell y'all? As soon as Donald Trump got in to be president, there was going to be a couple non-politician billionaires to get in. And Tom Steyer was the first. And I guess Bloomberg was mayor of New York City, for whatever anybody cares about that. Politics! You know, this is the kind of stuff that I really like to pay attention to on this show. And I think it sets it apart from other advocacy shows like, Glenn Beck or Pod Save America or something like that, right? When you're when you're fighting for a cause, then you can always find evidence to justify whether or not you're winning or losing. But what I like to do on this show is just keep a simple metric. Something that you can know at the beginning and at the end whether or not something worked. So for this impeachment, The one thing that I've watched is, all right, so they took a vote to begin it. Although it was like a vote that wasn't really a vote to begin the impeachment inquiry. That vote was on strict party lines, except for two Democrats that voted against it. So in my mind, by the time that we get to the end of this and everybody has gone out and everybody's given their uh, two cents and and, uh, all the... Witnesses have come forth. The evidence has been displayed. It should be reasonable that at the very least, all the Democrats should come home for the majority party that is looking to oust a sitting president. I don't think that's an unreasonable metric. At the very least, make it a strict party lines thing. Well, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. Because New Jersey representative Jefferson Van Drew says that he will likely oppose the articles of impeachment against President Trump. Now, he's open for new information, but this is him effectively signaling that he is not going to vote for impeachment as a Democrat. He comes from a seat that was held by Republicans and now sits in the Democratic slot He's getting heat from some of his Democratic constituents, but he's not going to vote for it. The other representative who didn't vote for it initially was Colin Peterson. And Colin Peterson has not indicated whether or not he is going to vote for impeachment now that he has seen it. Another vulnerable Democrat, Joe Cunningham, who flipped a long-held GOP seat last year in South Carolina. He also says that he doesn't know. So he would be somebody that did vote for it before. If he doesn't vote for it now, that's also not a good luck. When Nancy Pelosi says that she wants to hold on to these seats, that she wants to protect vulnerable Democrats, this was earlier, this this was during the, the Mueller push for impeachment. These are the people she's talking about. 
So if they impeach him, that'll be its own reward. But it's a further sign that removal's not going to happen. And you better hope that this sticks. You better hope that this sticks as a campaign issue for 2020, that it sticks as a, a stain on Donald Trump. Because if the Democrats couldn't even convince their own on this, let alone peel off some Republicans, which is what I think is another gigantic factor here. You got to be able to peel off somebody because politicians are always going to what they believe will be the most safe path going forward. If this were thought to be inevitable, then Republicans would flee. But it doesn't seem inevitable, or at least it seems survivable to them. In fact, for them, looking at the money that Trump is raising, it probably looks like something that they're going to run on. Politics! All right, before we get into our interview, I want to thank everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you can support this show. Uh, Somebody emailed me in, and I'm going to change this officially. That the the 1776 level, which is a collective goal, if we can get up to 1776, then I'm going to go to every primary. I'm going to go to New Hampshire. I'm going to go to South Carolina. That adds on to Iowa and Nevada that I've already committed to. I'm going to do California. I'm going to do Florida. But I'll do them all. I'll just stay on the road if we can get the, you know, dollars to make sense. But somebody said, if I'm listing off Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, California, Florida, I really sound like the homeboy Howard Dean. So, Tom Harkin, that's what I'm naming it. The Howard Dean level. If you want to get on the Dean level, then consider kicking in some change. Any, uh, Any amount is super helpful, but... Specifically, if you are at the $3 level, you get a bonus podcast on Monday and a bonus podcast on Thursday, which yesterday was all about Joe Biden challenging an 80-year-old to a push-up contest and calling him fat. That was pretty funny. Also, my brand new podcast, Raise the Dead. If you haven't tried it out, go ahead right now on all podcasting platforms. Just search for Raise the Dead. Maybe Stitcher's going to take a little bit because they always take a little bit. But it's up on Google Play, Pocket Cast. Pocket Cast right now, we're like killing it. We're like the number six show on Pocket Cast. So thank you if you listen on Pocket Cast. And we're still uh, up in the top 100 news podcasts. So uh, the reaction initially has been amazing. I greatly appreciate it. Raise the dead on all podcasting platforms. All right, let's get into our interview. Politics! Tom Berkey is the Ralph Emerson and Alice Freeman Palmer Professor of Political Science at Wellesley College. He is also the co-editor of Varieties of Legal Order. And we're going to find out exactly how much the courts have had their say in legislating while Congress continues to be deadlocked and dithered. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Okay. So uh, your specialty and and what we want to talk about with you today is how the courts, the court system has uh, affected some of the issues that theoretically should be a congressional concern. If there is a a, a, a meta level to this, 
you know, either a beginning of a trend or a good example to kind of uh, get us into the subject, what might it be? Well, let's take climate change. Climate change arguably is going to be the era, uh, the defining issue of our lifetimes, and not much is done in Congress. Congress has been blocked during liberal administrations on making any progress. So quietly, there has been action, lots of action going on. It's just not in Congress. It's in the courts and in the agencies. And that's just typical of a lot of areas of public policy, immigration, civil rights, uh, even health care. There's a lot of stuff that's going on off screen where the voters may not really be able to follow it um, and where arguably uh, our system was not designed, you know, to take the lead on public policy. But that's where it's happening. Uh, Okay, well. Then, then let's let's back up to here. Then, when we say courts, obviously that is a very, very large idea, from local courts to state supreme courts to the federal supreme court. Uh, when when we say that courts are shaping public policy, is it a combination of all of them, or or, or is there one place where people want to follow stuff like that they can kind of key on? Uh, actually, no. <laughs> That's part of what makes it complicated. There's a lot going on in state courts, and there's a ton going on in the federal courts below the Supreme Court. The okay. tendency is to focus on the Supreme Court and the big constitutional law cases. Like People know about the gay rights cases um, that involve the Constitution. They know about abortion and Roe versus Wade. But there's a bunch of layers beneath that where things are getting resolved all the time that are not constitutional and are not necessarily at the Supreme Court. And and I guess also if, if a decision is just made by a federal court and the Supreme Court doesn't hear it, then that is the law of the land, right? Like the, these, this is where the, you know, the federal courts below the Supreme Court are where a lot of things just get settled. Yeah, I always tell my students, the Supreme Court is kind of like a tenured professor. They can work as hard as they want or as little as they want. Yeah. (laughs) And actually, they don't actually have to do anything. Uh, They have a few cases they have to take. But they've been taking a lot fewer cases in the last few years. They get seven to 8,000 petitions to hear cases, and they hear about 100. And so that gives you a sense of, you know, and there's hundreds of thousands of cases in the federal courts. So they're only going to review a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage, arguably the most important cases, but still a very small number. All right. So so let's actually, uh, if I could, just get a few more details on the the climate change thing, because obviously that is a a uh, important issue, certainly uh, to many, many voters. Uh, yet you as you correctly pointed out it is not something that has had tremendous action in congress but when we say that action was taken on climate change what exactly do we mean well okay action was taken might be a strong uh (laughs) way to describe it okay there's a lot of activity first of all there's a case and i don't know how many people even know about this but you know the supreme court is more or less on record as saying that climate change is real, that it's a problem, and that the Environmental Protection Agency 
doesn't just have the ability to regulate greenhouse gases, but that it has the duty to regulate greenhouse gases. And that came about because of a case during the Bush administration called Massachusetts versus EPA, where a bunch of state attorneys general um, sued the EPA under George W. Bush because they said, hey, you have a duty under the Clean Air Act to do something about greenhouse gases. And the Supreme Court, 5-4 majority, said that's absolutely right. And of course, the Bush administration kind of slow walked that. But that was kind of the origins of what the Obama administration did. Because when Obama was unable to um, make a- get Congress to do anything serious about uh, climate change, he went ahead and through the Environmental Protection Agency, he, he um, drafted a whole series of rules. And this is another layer that the public doesn't get to see much of, which is rulemaking, uh, where federal agencies, based on statutes like the Clean Air Act, create rules, uh, regulations. Um, And I always tell my students, this is the most important legislative process in Washington, D.C. It's far more important than the textbook Congress makes a bill because it's going on all the time. Congress these days rarely ever passes legislation, but rulemaking happens all the time. And so he drafted this clean power plan, which was a very serious attempt to reduce greenhouse gases. And he also um, did some work to... Uh, improve fuel efficiency standards for cars. Now, mm. when I say that's, you know, more talk than action, what, what happened? Well, before those rules could be implemented, there was lawsuits. People sue and say, well, these rules are illegal. And that held them up. And then the Trump administration came to power and it's trying to reverse those rules. And of course, the reversal of those rules are also now in the federal courts um, and there's lawsuits about them. And so that's an example where you have a legal precedent and then like a, an agency like the EPA are, are making rules and putting them into place because of, of, of what was dictated by the courts. And so that immediately affects anybody who wants to do something in America because that is now the law of the land based on the EPA's decision. Right. But you can see how I said it's more activity than action because the rules themselves were then um, challenged. uh, A lot of what's going on, a lot of what's going on with the Trump administration these days on immigration, health care, the environment is they're reversing rules that the Obama administration had promulgated. And now then people are suing and saying, well, those rules themselves, the Trump rules are illegal. Yeah. So there's just a lot of activity. Well, here, let, let's get to another uh, a big bugaboo for the Trump administration. That is the repeal of Obamacare. They were unable to do it when they had control of the White House, the Senate, and the House. And yet that, on the other hand, uh, has not stopped some of the Republican interests from trying to repeal it in the courts, right? Absolutely. And, you know, they've gotten... Uh, very close in the courts to getting rid of Obamacare on a couple of occasions. The latest attack seems to me pretty crazy, and and maybe uh, you can validate my feeling this (laughs) seems insane. Um, So, okay, 
So let's go back to the first attack on Obamacare, uh, the constitutional attack. They said Republican attorneys general and Republicans argued, well, this is unconstitutional because the federal government can't force you to buy health care. You remember that? Mm -hmm. That was NFIB versus Sebelius. And the Supreme Court did this kind of weird thing because Chief Justice Roberts was the swing justice. They said, yeah, that's true, except what Congress really did was it said, if you don't buy health insurance, you have to pay this tax. Yeah. Okay. And taxing, yeah, and taxing is something that's clearly within the Congress's constitutional power. Okay, so now fast forward. The Republicans. And that, that, by the way, just so we can cement it for everybody, this is, of course, that that landmark Supreme Court case that uh, uh, pushes Obamacare uh, forward, or at least based on the initial legal challenge to it, with with the idea being that a tax is not illegal, but if you went to jail, I guess, immediately for not having health insurance, that might be a different thing. But, but, But if you are, if the penalty is a tax, then that was the Roberts decision to say that that was fine. Yeah. Now, fast forward to the Congress uh, under Trump uh-huh. and the Republicans, as you say, after promising their voters for years and years and years, we're going to repeal and replace this. And remember, Trump even said, I've got something better than Obamacare that we're going to replace it with. Yeah. But they couldn't come up with anything. Um, and so but they were able to agree on just one thing. Let's get rid of that tax. Let's get rid of that penalty for um, not buying health insurance. So they did that. They got rid of that as part of their tax cut bill. Okay, now they, uh, Republican attorneys general in the state go to the federal courts and they say, hey, wait a minute. The Supreme Court said the individual mandate was unconstitutional but the only saving grace was this tax. But now Congress got rid of the tax. So that makes Obamacare unconstitutional. Now, it's kind of crazy because at one level, OK, maybe the individual mandate, which they left in, you could strike that down. Yeah. But they're saying once. Yeah. Once you strike that down, they're claiming you have to strike down all of Obamacare, everything, the Medicaid expansion, the exchanges, the rules about insurance that say that you can't um, not cover people who have pre-existing conditions. It all has to go away. And they got a federal judge in Texas to agree to that. And right now, another panel at circuit court is considering it. And I don't think it's impossible that they are going to rule that Obamacare is unconstitutional. And that's all because of the tax, not necessarily because the penalty has become jailing somebody if if they don't have health insurance but just because by the letter of the law literally uh this is uh or at least that initial supreme court decision the tax was the saving grace right but if you think about it it's crazy because the individual mandate sits in the law now and it has no effect it i mean it can't do anything there's no it's not like they will send you to the jail for not getting health care. There's nothing in there. So really, it's null and void. There's nothing to it. And to use that as a pretense to strike down all of Obamacare is, well, I think it's really reaching. And, you know, a lot of scholars, conservative scholars agree it's really reaching. But 
you never know these days. Um, so it's quite possible we'll get an adverse ruling in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. <laughs> so we might not be done with having uh, big Supreme Court rulings on Obamacare. Yeah, and this is just a great example on both sides of how people can't get things through Congress, so they're trying all these Baroque legal strategies to instead fulfill their political objectives. Now, this is something, because the, the, the two examples that we've had so far seem to be on either side of the political spectrum. While, while folks might uh, be excited that there is some kind of movement on climate change, they would be very upset that the courts could rule Obamacare unconstitutional and vice versa. So that gets us to kind of the philosophical argument here. Is this the place to be making these laws or, or, or affecting these laws? Right. And, you know, from a democratic theory point of view, uh, you know, these judges in the federal courts are lifetime appointees. Mm -hmm. And it's somewhat historical accident, you know, who ends up on the court and who doesn't. Um, and there's all kinds of perverse effects of making the federal courts so important when it comes to public policymaking. I'll give you just one example. You know, the age of appointees is going down and down. Really? Why? Why? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's take the two Trump administration Supreme Court nominees. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At. They're younger. I'm not an old guy, but they're younger than me. They're in their early 50s. Why? Because lifetime appointment. Yeah, they could be on there, you know, when your grandchildren are, um, you know, coming of voting age. So that's one of the effects. Uh, another effect is huge fights over nominations. Um, we don't see it right now because the Republicans control the Senate. And so they're just ramming through the Trump appointees. But anytime you get divided government where you have a president of one party. Yeah. And a Congress, a Senate of the other party, you're going to have just a huge struggle. Well, I mean, and and even if the uh, uh, appointment was fait accompli, it, certainly the the Kavanaugh uh, appointment was was not quiet. You know, even if it was something that people knew how the how the end would happen. <laughs> Absolutely, and you're gonna you're gonna see much more of the court and courts being kind of. Uh, part of the political culture, the way, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has become this culture hero. That's, you know, Supreme Court justices used to be anonymous. There's a tale, maybe apocryphal, of uh, uh, someone taking a picture on the, uh, in front of the Supreme Court building and say, hey, old man, get, get out of the way. And that yeah. was <laughs> Justice Stevens. That's right? funny. <laughs> You know, they were in a lot of obscurity. That's kind of coming to an end now. Uh, and they're becoming political figures just the way that our, you know, more famous members of Congress and presidents have become political figures. I mean, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, obviously the the uh, Mitch McConnell, Merrick Garland, uh, uh, Antonin Scalia situation was a absolute – I mean, it, it became – a, a woven piece of the 2016 fabric. I mean, there, there is, there is definitely a question of exactly if Trump would even be elected considering uh, that, that there was an immediate Supreme court nomination on the line. 
Well, absolutely. Think of all the Republicans who had very serious doubts about Donald Trump. You know, in the exit polling, you get a quarter to a fifth of Republicans saying he's not a he can't be trusted. He doesn't really have the, um, you know, the requisites to be president. But they voted for him. Ninety percent of people identified with the Republican Party voted for him. Well, why is that? Well, a big part of that has to be the judicial appointments. And, you know, Trump hasn't been super successful on the legislative front other than the Tax Cut Act. Um, But the thing he can point to is these lifetime appointments in the federal courts. Yeah, that he got two two Supreme Court justices. And and that, I think, is partially why the Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, situation is is so uh, heated, because... You know, uh, you know, no one would wish anything ill toward her, but she's been in and out of the hospital over the past year, and that that becomes uh, quite quite an interesting turn of events if Donald Trump is still president if she uh, leaves the court. Eighty six years old, and you know, for all the respect she has, I have to say, some court watchers who are on the more liberal side say she did her side no favor well you know that that is the thing that i've i've started to see yeah that i've started to see is that that there there now becomes a bit of a a frustration that boils to the top uh you know beyond the kind of like yes queen notorious rbg crowd that says why didn't you step down when obama was president (laughs) like this this would have been a, a much simpler situation where you could have gotten another younger uh supreme court justice like Elena Kagan uh, was during the the Obama administration. You could have had another one there, but now uh, you know twenty twenty becomes yet another you know very crucial element of that with the courts. How much do you think that that does move the needle? Like, because obviously it has been a massive part of elections, presidential elections in my lifetime. Is that has that always historically been the case, or is that something that's really blown up over the last few decades? I think it's something that's become much more important over the last few decades. I have a colleague who's actually written quite a bit about this, and uh, she finds that, you know, the appointment to the federal court used to be more almost like a um, spoil system. It was more like, uh, well, of course, we're going to pick people from our party because those are good jobs. Yeah. Um, because the work of the federal courts was mostly pretty obscure. Now, that wasn't true at the Supreme Court level. The Supreme Court, there have always been controversies over appointments. There have always been going back almost to, you know, the 18th century. There have been failed nominations. Uh, but in terms of uh, voters calculus, I don't think you could say it looms at all in people's minds up until probably the Nixon administration, and then you have an acceleration that we're seeing the, you know, the last chapter of today. Is it Roe versus Wade? Is that what makes it this flashpoint? I think it's so many things. Brown versus Board of Education. Okay. Um, and, and just a whole series of areas where courts got into public policy realms that they weren't into previously. And, you know, historically, uh, the, the, in the 30s, I'm going to take you all Go, the way back love to it, the 1930s. Love it. You know, his, historically and in most countries today, the courts were allied with the right wing as protectors of business and, uh, you know, 
people who would strike down economic regulations. And that's, I mean, uh, broadly speaking, how people saw the courts up until through the 1930s. And then, and, and you know, a lot of the New Deal um, decisions were cases where the Supreme Court was striking down New Deal laws, and that generated a lot of controversy. So the first generation of liberal democratic justices were restrainists. They were people who said, well, the Supreme Court and the court shouldn't get involved in this stuff. Leave it to the elected branches. But that started to change in the 40s and 50s, and especially the 60s, um, with the due process revolution, the defendant rights revolution, uh, civil rights. In so many areas, uh, federal courts got into the act of of public policy. And then conservatives started with this kind of restraintist uh, rhetoric. But over time, they've discovered, well, this is a game two can play. And yeah. they've become very active. Uh, uh, that's, that's, that, that's fascinating. So you're saying that, that initially, uh, or how, how recently would it, w w would you say that conservatives have kind of understood that the courts are this battlefield to legislate from the bench? Maybe a germ of it in the Nixon administration, but really reaches a flower in the Reagan administration. And since then it's been, you know, full on, um, you know, there's, Actually, I've been a lot of work in my field written about this, that at first, uh, Republican and conservative interest groups struggled to figure out a way to have a legal strategy. What was their approach going to be? But now we're in an era when you have the gun rights lobby, you have the religious groups that use the courts all the time, you have business groups that use the courts all the time to strike down rules. And so you have the full flower. It used to be, well, liberal groups always had a legal strategy. Now everyone has a legal strategy. I can't help but think that part of this is because when you have increased polarization amongst the parties and there is less horse trading of, all right, well, we'll do this and you get this and then we'll do this and, you know, yeah, we'll both take a little bit of heat, but at least we can advance our agendas as we are each in power for a certain period of time, that this is just the natural place where that tension goes, because that's the one thing that is true about the courts is that at a certain point, somebody has to make a decision, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're right on it. But let me add a second point. And this is a, a something political scientists have just recently kind of come to. Yes, it's polarization. The parties have drifted apart ideologically. And as a result, it's just harder to find common ground. But there's a second thing going on, which might even be more powerful. If you think about this era of bipartisanship, that's kind of our background, if you know, people of a certain age, uh, in terms of your expectation of what should go on in Congress. Yeah, that's a period from Yeah, that's this period from uh, basically the New Deal from the 1930s up through the 1990s, let's say. And what characterized that period? Complete democratic dominance of Congress. Yeah. And, as, and so the incentives for Republicans were, look, you could just sit there and oppose everything, but that you're not going to get anything out of that. So what Republicans did at the time was work with Democrats 
to maybe improve legislation to their minds, kind of, you know, take some of the edges off from a conservative point of view. That, from an incentives point of view, that was the right move. Now, fast forward to this era that we've had since the 1990s. It's this remarkable period, kind of unusual in American history, where all, you know, the Senate, the House, and the presidency flip back and forth between the Republicans and Democrats. And what's happened, political scientists think, is that each party, but especially the Republicans, have calculated, hey, if we're in the minority, the way to regain the majority is don't cooperate. Deny yeah. any victories to the other side. And if we do that, maybe we'll gain, we'll become the majority next time. So let's not, let's not compromise in any way. And there's many cases, I think, on immigration, maybe on health care, other areas, where Republicans who probably, from a policy point of view, might agree with what's going on or be willing to vote for it, from a strategic point of view, they decide, well, look, we're just not going to, um, we're not going to side with the Democrats. We're going to pull away. And so it's polarization, but it's also this era of competition. And the combination is making it very hard for Congress to do anything on a lot of issues that are very urgent. And that is a very important thing to point out is that, uh, you know, the, the, the Republicans didn't get the House, didn't get control of the House until like Gingrich, right? Like, I mean, it was it was absolutely decades, decades yeah. before the, 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 the Republicans controlled it. Yeah, and this was one of Gingrich's things when he was um, rabble rousing among the Republicans was you people have this loser mentality. You've got to, you know, you got to fight more. Stop yeah. cooperating. That was his message. And it's, boy, Gingrich has been a very important figure in changing the political culture in America because he changed the way Republicans think about, you know, what's in their interest. And it's created this much tougher, much harsher uh, culture in Congress. Well, yeah, although I, I tend to believe, you know, if, if there's one constant in my understanding of government is that politicians are very rarely anything but reactionary creatures. So this has to come from somewhere. And if the base is more active and uh, they they have less of a, a a designation between like, OK, well, does this happen in Congress or does this happen in the courts? Then. I think that there there tends to be more of a permission. The the onus for Congress is on denial of victories for the opposition. Like that that to 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 engage in any kind of uh, middle of the road bargaining is treasonous, and and that's something that seems to be just sort of the the rules of engagement of all the way around these days. Well, I certainly wouldn't want to be understood as saying Gingrich came out of nowhere. I mean, partly yeah. he was sniffing the political winds and, and seeing where they led. But the one caution I would put is that Republicans in Congress, uh, there's pretty good research on this, that on some issues, they are not necessarily where their voters are, um, that they're often a little bit more conservative than their voters are, especially on economics issues. And... You know, they are able to get away with that partly because there's such an intense ne political scientists call this. This is bloodless social science term, <laughs> negative, effective polarization. And that just means for Republicans and Democrats out in the country, 
it's not so much about ideology. It's affective, meaning it's emotional and yeah. it's negative. It's I hate those other guys. I, you know, I may not like this guy, Trump. I may not agree with him on a lot of issues, but one thing's for sure. I don't want the Democrats in charge. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I'm glad that we've painted such a rosy picture for everybody going into their weekend. Uh, so I guess let, 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 let's try to end looking forward. Is this a trend that you see intensifying or dissipating? You know, the one thing in social science that we try to get away from is making predictions. Sure. I, you know, the, the thing, so I, it's funny because I'm just wrapping up teaching my American politics class. And one of the things I want to say is that, you know, the patterns that seem so uh, baked in, you know, polarization, the gridlock in Congress, the push of public policy to the executive agencies, to unilateral policymaking by presidents and to the courts, all this seems kind of inexorable and that it just get worse over time. But one thing we know from American political history is things change. Yeah. Exogenous events. We call them exogenous events. Another bit of, uh, you know, a climate <laughs> crisis, some kind of national emergency. Things are likely not to, you know, I'd be surprising, I would say to the students, if we stayed in this kind of realm for the next 30, 40 years. But what is going to shift things? I can't, I, <laughs> I you, a fortune teller might be better than me sure. for uh, getting you to there. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, I, I think it is a fascinating conversation because it is uh, uh, obviously uh, like, like I think I think we, we pretty well touched on just a, such an amazing outgrowth of what's happening uh, politically. Uh, my guest has been Tom Berkey. He, of course, is the Ralph Emerson and Alice Freeman Palmer Professor of Political Science at Wellesley College and the co-editor of Varieties of Legal Order. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks. Politics! All right. What do you say we wrap this bad boy up with a little bit of but your emails? Of course, you can always send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Evan writes, In Virginia, since Democrats now have control of the state Senate, state house, and governor's office, many gun control bills that have been proposed will likely go to the upcoming legislative session. In response, guns rights groups have been calling on local governments to declare themselves, quote, Second Amendment sanctuary cities. What that actually means varies by locality, but for some, it is only an official proclamation that the local governing body is opposed to any restriction on gun ownership. And for others, it's an outright declaration that they won't enforce that law that, quote, restricts a person's rights to bear arms, end quote. In southwestern Virginia, where I live, the red part of the state, those resolutions are passing very easily and quickly with little resistance. Today, the local government I work for passed such a resolution. It's the first time I've ever seen the parking lot of the administrative building fill up. And when I left, I realized that all the side streets were filled, too. Not sure why so many uh, people felt they needed to speak, uh, but there was because there was little chance that our all Republican board would vote it down. Basically, here were the views expressed in three categories. The minority opinion. This is a waste of time. I wish the board was spending their time on important issues that people actually care about. 
This point is substantially correct, since the state courts have long upheld the Dillon rule, meaning that local municipal governments are just legislative arms of the state, and what the state says goes. Number two, the majority opinion. This is important, since this is how we let our state legislature know that we don't want our rights restricted. This is also basically correct. It is one method of conveying information to the state legislature, though they could also do so more directly. The state legislatures are pretty easy to contact. And number three, the remaining opinion was, I don't want these socialists in Richmond telling me I can't have my guns. This stance amused me the most, since it seemed to be the most often expressed by the oldest members of the crowd, you know, the ones most likely to be collecting Social Security and have their health care paid by Medicare. I just wanted to share this with you since I can't really express anywhere since my job kind of requires me to remain neutral on political issues. Thank you for humoring me. Well, I think that this was very, very well measured because I don't really uh, even get a sense of exactly how you feel about it, Evan. So all I'll say is this is very interesting. And whenever you get into non-enforcement of a law, to circumvent it, I think you get yourself into trouble. And I say that as somebody who, you know, we we currently live in a world where in many places marijuana is decriminalized. And yes, while I think that that is, I would like, I enjoy a world where marijuana is legal. I don't think that not enforcing the law is a good thing. I think that we should change the laws because if we get into this ever devolving world of self-selecting how we handle it, I think that that becomes a problem. And honestly, this is one of the biggest signs of, to me, political cowardice. Politicians very rarely want to repeal laws. And even when they change things, it's with new laws that often conflict and end up in the courts, like we heard from Professor Berkey. So, uh, yeah, the sanctuary city thing I've always just found a little weird. Because ultimately, look, if there's a political will to change immigration, then we should change immigration on the immigration side. And if there's a political will... On this gun control thing, then then there's going to be political will on the gun control thing. The idea that that we're just sitting this one out, eh, you know, I, I think I think it just leads into troubling areas. Joey, aka Diamond Scoop, asked me how I could forget the greatest campaign bus of all time, and then sent me a gif of Lex Luger's Lex Express bus. I will say this: anybody that can land on top of an aircraft carrier and body slam Yokozuna gets my unquestioned vote for president. And finally, Nick writes, this comes from a rather uninformed voter, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Bernie Sanders is running an awesome campaign. My main concern as a young Democratic liberal voter is singular. Bernie's old, and there's not much getting around that. In my layman's opinion... What would get on the Bernie bus 100%, especially for people who are on the fence, is I would love for Bernie to announce his running mate now. 
Someone who is young and progressive make it part of his campaign message to subtly imply that if Bernie died of another heart attack in office, we would have the perfect, maybe better, replacement. Of course, he couldn't come right out and say this. He'd have to work it into the main message. I don't know. Uh, I want to know what you think. If it helps, I'm white. Well, white Nick. uh, So, at least historically, this is not some... Naming a... A a running mate is not something that you do early on for a few reasons. Number one, selecting a running mate is often far more about a crisis in the moment than it is about actually having a partner that you want to work with for four to eight years. And if. By the time that Bernie gets to the convention, if he is indeed the nominee, if the only thing that is still there on his plate is that people understand him to be extraordinarily old, that will be a tremendous boon for him. Because that means that the party divisions uh, will not be as big as one might expect they would be, uh, including that the moderates will just be in revolt, saying, nah, no, you want to know what? I think this is a bad idea. The progressive ideas are too far. I'm sitting out. So theoretically, this is normally what happens. I don't know if it would happen with Bernie because Bernie is an ideologue and that is his charm. But you usually pick a vice president on where your message is lacking at the moment of the convention or around the moment of the convention. That's usually the big inflection point because this is the last time that you're going to have a chance to moderate things a little bit before you have the big spotlight of the convention and then you go in to the final run of the campaign. So while I understand for some people that's going to be a thing, to me, if people are worried that Bernie's old, that's the best case scenario for Bernie. Because if you're saying he's old, You're not saying he's a commie. And that will bring us to an end today. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier squids mixtape. Jaime, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Ball, Mike, and Brad. If you want to join their ranks, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you want to email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our music has been provided by Valesco and Trop Killers, and you can follow me at Justin R. Young everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, specifically. Get my new podcast, Raise the Dead, available for free on all podcasting platforms. That wraps it up for today. A reminder that politics has three names, and I saw a show that was talking about politics, and then I saw another one that was talking about politics, and I downloaded an app that told me about another that talks about politics. But this is the only show that talks about... Oh!
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>